Greetings, my friends, and welcome to Hardwater Radio. This is Jason Archer. We're recording under the umbrella of Hardwater One here in the Valley of the Sun. And today we continue the mission to arm humans with the tools to crush mediocrity, create mastery, and live in total wellness with my next guest, Ference Toth. Now, Ference is a serial entrepreneur who's been involved in many different businesses. He is currently the president and founder of Secure Estate Management, as well as chairman of the board of a bank in formation. You can find him at yourpersonalbank.com and on the radio, on Money Radio at Your Personal Bank. So, Ference, my friend, welcome to the show, brother. I am super stoked to talk to you. We have a mutual friend, Pete who speaks extremely highly of you, and that is my connection to you thus far, but I'm really anxious to dive into your story because I know you've been through a lot, lived a lot of lives, worn a lot of hats. So welcome (laughs) on, my friend. Thanks for being here. Uh, It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, Yeah, you might say that. My uh, my wife calls me a renaissance man. (laughs) (laughs) There are few and far between in today's world, I think. Uh, It seems like people specify in one little thing, and they, they find that little corner of the world, and they live there and hang out there. I guess what happens I've learned over the years is I, I learned something. I very curious. I love to learn, uh, be, try to become an expert in that field. And then, uh, frankly, I've quickly become bored mm-hmm. and start looking for the next challenge. So the comfort zone for me, I just have never been wired that way. Mm-hmm. I don't understand it. And so I struggle sometimes understanding, like I'm a great entrepreneur, like you said, starting businesses, getting things up and going. I'm not a great manager. That's what I've learned. So I've learned what my strengths are, what my weaknesses, and you try to play your strengths, right? Absolutely. Where do you think that comes from? I I can relate to that statement that you made about kind of getting bored easy, you know, or getting Mm -hmm. bored with things. You know, where do you think that comes from? I, I've thought about that a lot of times, Jason, and, and I don't know if I have the answer. I think it's partly just the way you are, personality, how you're wired. Um, Obviously, how you, you know, things that happen to you and you grow up, I shared with you very briefly, one of my earliest experiences that, you know, challenges mold us. Mm -hmm. And so when I was just turned seven, uh, you know, my dad was killed unexpectedly in a drowning accident. Wow. And we were a family that was at that time, upper middle class. He was an acoustical acoustical engineer. So Mm -hmm. we were definitely upper middle class, lived on the lake, you know, the whole kind of thing, suburbia. And my mom was a school teacher, but with three small kids at home, full-time mom. Uh, suddenly, we went from upper middle class to immediately, you know, barely making it. Mm, we, mm. we literally moved to a farm. We raised all our own food, actually, to eat. Uh, we go to the store once a month to get sugar and flour, stuff like that. But we raised everything else. Amazing. And uh, you, you learn, to learn to work hard, and you learn not to um, take things for granted mm. when that happens to you. I'm assuming that wasn't out here in AZ, um, being no. that nobody really lives on the lake here. <laughs> no, I was in Missouri. Uh, grew up around Kansas City area, actually. So okay. I was in northern northern Kansas City. Then we moved to south, just south Kansas City, actually on a horse farm. Mm-hmm. Raised Arabians, learned how to raise and train Arabian horses. Mm-hmm. And a bunch of other animals, like I said, for food. We had mm-hmm. a huge garden. Um, I hated weeding that garden. I remember. <laughs> uh Great way to uh, grow up. You gain, you, you learn a lot of discipline. You learn a lot, but good way to grow up, but, but a hard way to grow up. No question. Mm-hmm. What so. was it when you look back on it now? I mean, obviously having many, many years to process that experience of losing right. your father, you know, what, 
when you look back now, what was it that really changed in your life at that point? You know, a lot, I think a lot of people have experienced loss, but I think experiencing right. loss as a young man, uh, uh, basically a child at this point is very different right. from experiencing that as an adult. I'd say two big lessons for me. And, uh, one of them was, like I said, you, you get changed and molded from challenges in life and, and over the years and over my lifetime, you know, I've run into situations, clients, friends, people I work with who have suffered great loss, you know, a lot losing a spouse or things like that. And there's no words that you can share with somebody like that. You can't comfort them. Uh, you know, it's crazy. Uh, it happened, what, gosh, 30, well, we're going on 40 plus years ago. And it still chokes me up a bit just thinking about it. So those kind of times of great loss never go away. You never forget it totally. Uh, it's not like I think about it every day, understand. But when it comes up, I'm not afraid to talk about it. But it's hard to talk about. And it's given me an empathy that, well, I'm a financial, you know, my I've been a financial advisor for 22 years and I work with a lot of folks in retirement planning and things like that. And I have a lot of clients who are both younger business owners, but I also have a number that are retirees, retirees. And, uh, you know, I've got some that, you know, they lost their husbands. All you can do is hug them. I mean, there's nothing you can say. And the, um, the response is, these are, these are lifetime clients. These are not, you know, these are people, these are people I've gotten to know and we've worked together for decades, literally now. And the letters and responses I get from some of those situations are priceless because I just, they said that you, you did the exact right thing. You, you get, you understood and it was a kindred experience. And like I said, there's no words. And unless you've experienced that type of loss, you honest, honestly, you don't understand until it happens to you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, and then a, a word of caution, I was always saying, this was a challenge for me that took me a couple decades to get over, frankly, until I was probably in my mid twenties was, uh, you know, my mom was hurting. I understood, but the first statement she uh, said to me, you know, he, he died in the hospital and the next morning they came and told us kids that, you know, dad had died. And, um, First thing she said is, well, you you know, stop crying. You're the man of the house. And <laughs> don't do that to your kids, please. Don't ever do that to somebody. Because I did do that. I listened. But I paid the price for the next 20 years before I was able to even, you know, actually cry about it. And, you know, we're men and that's not, uh, it's not masculine. It's not manly. But, you know, we're human beings too. Mm. And, um when I was finally able to actually really cry about it and get it out of my system, I was actually finally able to move forward and it not be like Charlie Brown, that cloud that's hanging over your head throughout your life. That changed my life and changed my perspective and what I was able to move forward with mm -hmm. and realize that I could accomplish more things that life. Yes, is unfair sometimes, but, um, you know, those things are what those challenges in life is exactly what makes us stronger. hundred percent, my friend. I, yeah. I can only imagine uh, being a seven year old child and being right. in that space where, you know, you've lost someone who's of massive importance to your development, right. but then right. having the other person who's massively important to your development, selling you now, you are the man of the household. 
What, yeah. did, what did that do to you from a mindset standpoint? What did you take on? What responsibilities, what roles, what assumptions did you make in, around what that meant? Well, I mean, as a kid then, I didn't know any better, so I kind of took it to heart. So I did, you know, I started taking on responsibilities that you would normally consider of somebody much older. And, you know, I started cooking, you know, and, and part of it was necessary, I understood. My mom had to go back to school to get another degree so she could get a, a raise as a school teacher. Uh, get her master's so that we could actually have enough income to live on stuff like that. Cause it's not like we had life ins- much life insurance back then or anything, by the way, I'm a life insurance agent today. <laughs> <laughs> One of the reasons, because I understood what, it, what the impact it has on families. But, um, but yeah, I started cooking when I was seven for the family, you know, like five, six days a week, um, taking care of two younger kids, had a younger sibling, brother and sister. And you, you just get tough or, um, you get, there's a wall that goes up emotionally and, you know, yes, that impacted me in my relationships earlier in life, um, because you didn't want to get hurt again. Right. So I take that to mean that you, you found yourself a bit more guarded at this point. No question. And like I said, it was about 20 years later. I was like 27, I believe it was when. Um, I actually got involved with a church. Um, you know, I've been, you know, as a young boy involved with churches growing up and stuff, but you know, unfortunately that they didn't do much to help us. And, you know, I got very disillusioned about all that, frankly. And so for our whole family did. And, but I found myself in my mid, mid twenties kind of searching for something. I, and I, uh, by the way, I, I, and the other thing was I was really kind of lost. I didn't have direction. I, I, you're right. You made a good point. I lost one, my father, but I also, frankly, emotionally lost my mother too, because she was bitter, angry, hurt. And never, she today to this day has not really recovered. Mm-hmm. And, um, so I had an emotionally distant mom. How's that? Mm-hmm. And when I was younger, I was angry about that, frustrated about that today. We have a relationship. I can't say it's a great one, but, we have one and it's, uh, but I understand better why. I mean, she, but I also understand and have made it a point that again, challenges are going to, you're going to go two ways. You're going to become better or you're going to become bitter. I decided ultimately to become better. I was bitter for a long time. Don't get me wrong, but I eventually decided to get better. Uh, my mom never, she's a bitter person and it's sad, but, what do you do? <laughs> right, right. What do you do? You know? Yeah. Right. It's, it's interesting to hear you tell that story because I, I didn't know this about you prior to now. And I don't normally I, share that, yeah. especially out the gate with most people. So <laughs> you're a great interviewer. <laughs> well, no, I appreciate, I appreciate that. I, you know, you, you made a point earlier about how men are not necessarily known for their vulnerability. But right. I, I feel like that's one of those uh, aspects of strength that's largely overlooked because that is the definition of strength. I mean, there's nothing more strong yep. than putting your place in a putting yourself in a place where you could potentially be attacked, which is what vulnerability really is, and right. allowing that space to just exist. But um, what I was thinking of as I was listening to your story was my mom also came from a very her her situation was different, but she came from a very abusive household. And so from a young age, she was the oldest child and she took on those responsibilities, like you mentioned, cooking, taking care of the younger kids. And I saw that manifest itself in her life as she felt like she didn't have a childhood. And so when she grew up, 
she yep. sort of wanted to relive that, you know, through like buying things like uh, figurines mm-hmm. and, and little collectibles yeah. and things that you would s- normally see in a child's room. Like these are the things that she gravitated towards because she missed out on that aspect of life. And I'm wondering if that was something that you could relate to. Absolutely. I mean, I could say after, because uh, I was, because I didn't have a very emotionally evolved mother and I didn't have a father. So direction and what I wanted to do with my life and things like that, there just wasn't any. So I bounced around various, tried a lot of different things, uh, starting in junior high, then high school. I found I was actually quite good at music. Uh, I played the trombone. I quickly became like first chair. And, you know, then there was districts and state and all these kind of things. And I actually got um, um, auditioned for a, well, actually I was going to be, a, I was, I always got good grades in school. I was actually a good kid. I wasn't, uh, you know, I didn't, didn't get into trouble and stuff. I didn't go that route, but I, I, w- I, I lacked direction. I was aimless. Okay. And I, I auditioned for this group that came through at a high school assembly. I was going to be a veterinarian, but I decided I didn't want to, to devote that level of devotion or focus for that long. I didn't have that kind of focus back then. And I recognized that. So trying to get a medical degree wasn't really realistic, although they had the grades for it. Uh, I didn't have the focus for it. And a musical group came through. They traveled a lot. They were in the military. Um, I auditioned for it. I got accepted. It was the old guard, Fife and Drum Corps, mm-hmm. if you want to look that up. Um, it's a, the presidential escort, uh, we're stationed in D.C. So we did a lot of arrival ceremonies at the White House. And I got to meet all kinds of div- div- dignitaries and presidents. And so it was fun. I met I met Ronald Reagan, you know, oh, cool. personally, stuff like that. That's great. And then we also traveled a lot around the country doing different parades and events like the Kentucky Derby and and, uh, you know, those kinds of events around the country. So uh, when they said travel, I was a small town farm boy in Missouri, never been anywhere outside of the surrounding states ever. And the travel was appealing. So I joined the Army, although I was not motivated, interested in being in the military. <laughs> Um, the one thing I can say, I, I, quick little story. Uh, the one thing I can say my mom did do one time she gave me a, a piece of advice that turned out to be good is I auditioned. I got the accepted to this group, which was actually an honor. Not, you know, it was kind of tough to get into this group. Mm-hmm. And she goes, well, you're going to do it, do it. And I'm like, well, I'm interested, but they said I have to join the army and go to basic training. Mm-hmm. I wasn't interested in that. Okay. <laughs> to be fair. And she finally said something to me. She's, you going to go in? Because I had to go in and do a follow-up th- meeting with them, like the Saturday. And she goes, you going to go? And I said, nah. I started making excuses. It's kind of early. And I got to drive into town. And, well, I don't have enough money for gas. And she's like, here's the money for gas. You need to go. I think this is something you should do. Mm-hmm. Really? I think I listened because I had gotten so little advice from her growing up. It was one of, like, the one piece so it kind of stuck with me. I was like, all right. And I, I went for it. I can't say I enjoyed basic training. I didn't. <laughs> but I learned a lot. And one thing I learned is it's not the physical challenge. I was, I was also in sports. I played soccer. I was actually quite good. I got scholarship offers, even not great ones, but some. Mm-hmm. So I was, I, I was, you know, athletic, strong in music. And um, I was always waffling, should I do this or that? Because I really didn't know. 
it was the mental aspect. And the thing I can give the credit to the military and something I, I would recommend to anybody who is young and lacks some direction probably should consider the military, even though I didn't. What I realized from that, because what they're, they're on you all the time. You know, you're tired, you're frustrated. I had this, uh, I had this drill sergeant and the dude was, I mean, his Smokey the Bear hat hit me right here in the chest. So he's a little short guy with this huge booming voice. And he would scream at you and hit his Smokey the Bear hat right in your chest. And every obscenity under the sun, right? Just screaming your head off, his head off. You're tired. You're frustrated. You're just, and he's just doing everything he can to get under your skin. You know what I try to say? And I'm just sitting there. I just want to knock the guy's block off. And I know I can. He's just this little dude, right? I could kill him. I, everything in me, you're just you're tightening your fist because you just want to punch the dude in the face. He knows that. You know that. And what I came to realize is, wait a minute, this is a big mental game. If I can handle not punching this dude out, of course, if I did, I'd go to Leavenworth, and I didn't want to do that, <laughs> and get through. So you start counting the days. I just got to get through to this point. And you gain a lot of mental strength through that. And you come to realize, holy cow, wait a minute. I can do a lot more than I originally thought. That That's where I grew up. In fact, from that experience, I actually, for a while I was younger, I was even considered, I became from the guy who in high school I wouldn't ask a girl out because I was afraid of the rejection. Every girl I dated asked me. I just would not ask them because I didn't want to be rejected to – I got a little cocky. <laughs> I went the other other way for a while, right? Because right. I got to the point where I realized, wait a minute, I can do whatever I set my mind to. And it was that experience that gave me that, and that that strength and that experience is what's allowed me to like move forward, start businesses, be an entrepreneur. Uh, and I'm not saying this to be cocky, but I believe that if I set my mind to do something and I'm real willing to commit, I can make it happen. Mm. It goes That's, back to that experience. That is so powerful, so powerful. Yeah. And it's such a simple statement. You know, if mm-hmm. I believe I can make it happen, I can make it happen. And right. That's, that's one of those beliefs I feel like definitely comes from the masculine side of being yep. raised, you know, by a yep. strong or having some sort of strong masculine influence. Right. And I'm wondering, you know, because of your experience with losing your father and then going into the military, it almost sounds like the military was almost like a surrogate father, like a surrogate gateway to getting that masculine energy into your life. And I, yes. And I could see that with a lot of the guys in the unit, you know, there was a lot of that. We were, you know, it was a lot of divorce situations. There's a lot of, there's a lot of young men without a masculine, you know, influence in their lives. There's no question the military provides that type of thing. And you gain a lot of positive aspects of it. Um, i glad I did it. I, I wouldn't want to do it again. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> but I am glad I did it. Yes. And I would encourage anyone, any young person who maybe is a bit aimless or lacks some confidence in their lives, mm-hmm. consider the military as an option. Mm-hmm. Um, because literally, you, I did. You'll grow up mm-hmm. and gain some maturity. You touched on something that was really interesting earlier. You, you touched on the concept of empathy. And I think this is mm-hmm. one of those, those ideas and experiences that people either get or they don't get. There's no middle ground. You either are empathetic mm-hmm. or you're not. 
And then you contrasted that later in the conversation with your experience in the military of going in sort of quiet, but not necessarily mm-hmm. coming out that way, having a little bit more bravado, <laughs> a little bit more swag, if you will, right. right? a little bit more <laughs> cockiness, if we should even go that far. I'm wondering yeah, if, if, I was. Uh, if you see uh, the balance of those two things, like how empathy balances that swagger. You know, there's a point at yeah. which you push, you push a little too far. And in right. my mind, I see empathy as knowing where that line is. I'm curious what your take on that is. Well, yeah, I mean, it took me a while. I mean, I had, you know, in high school, I wouldn't ask a girl out. After I got in the military, no fear. I'd, if I like, if there was a girl I liked, I'd ask her, hey, you want to get together? You know? And it was amazing how, so it was, and you know, women in general uh, like confidence. I don't think that's a secret. And so all of a sudden I had this newfound confidence and being young and immature, you know, didn't know exactly how to balance that initially because I'd never had that kind of confidence. I had a couple of girls break up with me because, as I said, you're too darn cocky. (laughs) But you learn from that. And so I think it's more of a pendulum shift where I was, frankly, I lacked the confidence and direction because I just I didn't have that for age seven on. And then all of a sudden I get, I find this newfound source of confidence and yeah, you kind of, you know, you go a little crazy for a while and then you have some experiences where somebody said, you know, somebody you care about says, Hey, you're, you're dude, you're too cocky. Yeah. I can't deal with you. And <laughs> so you start realizing, well, maybe there's a, there, maybe there's a, there's a middle ground here. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I, I think it's, yeah, you eventually kind of find that balance, but it, it took a while. <laughs> now, how old were you when you went into the military? 18, straight out of high school. And then you came out I didn't at know what age? 21, so I did three years. Okay. Um, like I said, great experience. Got to travel around the country, met a lot of famous people, mm-hmm. uh, got to do a lot of fun stuff. And uh, But after about three years of it, I was tired of living out of a suitcase mm-hmm. and was wanting something. So I went to, the, went to college, uh, Missouri State. Um, got an agriculture degree cause I didn't know any better. Mm-hmm. Grew up on a farm, you know, seemed to make sense. Um, I went to another little interesting story is junior. Yeah. My ju- uh, between my sophomore junior year in college, I got an internship with a forest service and I, I was a wilderness ranger in Idaho, Sawtooth mountains that summer. Awesome experience. I love the mountains still do. And, um, actually was considering that as a career choice because I love the outdoors so much until one I was there one day and reading a paper and realized they had an article. It's interesting. It's, it's interesting how little things sometimes you later realize are life changing directions. Mm-hmm. And this article was showing the different uh, careers out there and the level of stress and then also the level of income pay, mm-hmm. you know, contract. And it was interesting Forest ranger was considered the lowest stress job on that list. I'm like, well, that's cool. It also was the lowest paying. <laughs> and I thought, I got a little more ambition than that. Much as I would love to do this, I'd like to actually make a living. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that got me thinking I didn't really want to be a forest ranger. Mm-hmm. So I went back, figured out the only degree at this point, I've been two years in college already. The only degree I could switch to is a uh, crop and soil science, which is an agronomy degree without losing credits. So I, and I really liked the agronomy professor. He kind of became a mentor of mine. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the mentors. I, I, I can't go, uh, I can't not say this is, uh, 
you know, in high school when I was really struggling and, and my high school band director was a, was a big influence. He's so talking about a masculine influence. Mm-hmm. He was probably the biggest one as a, even though I was still aimless, but he had been in the military, phenomenal trumpet player, uh, a man's man kind of music. You think of musicians as kind of what this guy, nothing wimpy about him. He'd been in the military for like a dozen years. Okay. This guy was tough. And one of those guys you respected. Mm-hmm. And he he took on a father role for me in high school. So I did have some some male influence growing up, but it's not the same as having a dad. Right, right. Just isn't. Um, so anyway, yeah, I got the agronomy degree. Um, the best job, uh, the, you know, I, I was um, offered a, a advanced, you know, a University of Iowa wanted me to get a master's for free. I got, again, I was always a good student. I didn't want to go to the cold country. I was kind of sick of being in the cold country. <laughs> and so I started looking for master's degrees uh, in nice warmer weather. And I found Texas A&M and U of A. And that's when I found Arizona, fell in love with it. And at that point, I didn't know if I want a master's degree or start a business. I had had in my mind, I wanted to be at this point, I'm saying I'm going to be a millionaire by 40. Mm-hmm. I had no idea how I knew it was business related, but you know, that, I always said that when I was in the army and, uh, another turning point was, uh, and this was a really smart thing. So if anybody's going to go for education, here's a, here's a, here's some advice that I learned. I got to thinking about it. I had out of, out of college, I got a job with the USDA, uh, at soil, uh, with the, uh, uh, soil conservation service. Hated it. It was a desk job, pencil and paper. I was just bored out of my mind. Six months, I quit because I couldn't handle it. Decided to go get a master's degree to start a business. Looked at U of A and Texas A&M, like I said. And then I asked a really, really smart question. I thought, I asked the professor, you know, what is a, a person with, I was looking at a uh, master's in soil science, maybe even a PhD. What does someone with a master's of soil science do? He goes, well, we just have a recent graduate. I'll have you meet them tomorrow at their work. They can kind of share. That'd be great. So I go meet this gal. She'd been graduated a couple of years, show me what she did for a living. She designed um, waste waste management systems like for oil tanks and stuff like that. And I said, well, do you ever go out in the field? Because remember, I just quit a government job where I sat at a desk. I never got to go out. I started as a surveyor in a few months, they put me in a desk. I loved the surveying, hated the desk, right? She goes, no, I sit here in the computer. This is back, back away. CAD programs were new, right? This is very advanced stuff back then. So she's doing all this CAD. Do you ever go out in the field? No, I just do the topo search. I walked away from it thinking, I just quit a job, basically doing what she does. Yes, she gets paid a little more. Go for two more years of school, get paid more to do what I already hate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the master's degree was off the table. So then it was like, all right, I wanted to start a business. What kind of business? <laughs> what can I do? The big question, yeah. Right entrepreneurs. That's like, that's why I become a serial entrepreneur because it's like you fancy this shiny object or that one, right? That's right. I read a book. I can't even remember the name of it today, but it's again, one of those little th- nuggets that changes your life direction and said, if you know, if you buy an existing business, one of the advantages is immediate cash flow. Mm-hmm. And often you can find an older business owner who's looking to retire and they'll, they'll fund or, or cover some of the cost of purchasing the business. I thought, hmm, that's interesting. So then I started thinking, what kind of businesses could I do? And I, at that time in my life, I had one person in my life I knew who was, an, who was a not business owner. It was my uncle. 
and he'd owned, he'd owned paper businesses and different, he owned a plumbing, just recently retired owning a plumbing business actually. But I talked to him, Uncle Bob, and I said, you know, I'm looking at businesses, I'm looking at buying a business, but I, I don't know what kind or where. He goes, well, you got an agriculture degree, right? I'm like, yeah. He goes, what about something in that arena? So I live in Phoenix. What am I going to do with an agriculture degree? <laughs> right? He goes, well, what about plant nurseries? It's plants, right? I'm like, got a point. So I started looking and I literally, I got on back then Yellow Pages, called all the different nurseries in Phoenix and asked for the owner and talked to them interest, and asked them if you're interested in selling their business. Really? You just cold yeah. called? For cold called. Yeah. Yeah. I'm 24 years old, fresh out of college. Right. And, uh, Full of piss and vinegar, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Big ideas. Had a little bit of money from a trust. By the way, I, I help people get trust today because I got that from my dad. Mm-hmm. I got it when I was 21, helped pay for some school at college, and then I had some left over. So I had some money I could put down on a business. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got one of the guys, is a Paradise Nursery in Peoria, or in, uh, in Glendale, Arizona. Mm-hmm. says, yeah, I'm thinking about selling. Let's talk. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Went to work at that business, so uh, he was interested. But I, I also was reading in that book, they said one of the smart things, don't just buy a business. Get involved with that business. Go to work there. Get under the hood and understand what that business is about. And you'll flesh out, why is he really wanting to sell? Is he really just wanting to retire or is there other problems? Mm-hmm. So I actually became an employee there for six months working for him. And he showed me a lot of the ropes. It's got, it, was, it was actually a great experience. And... Uh, I learned a lot about that business and the ins and outs. And, and after six months, realized this is a good, solid business. Mm-hmm. So I bought it. You know, a lot of people would hear that story. Well, I'm, I'm going to speak for myself. I hear that story right. and I see a lot of people in the world today. I actually just wrote about this today on my Instagram. Mm-hmm. Uh, I see people waiting for circumstances to line up for them before they actually choose to, to be, do, have, to become the person right. who does the things, right. who has the things. And so right. I'm wondering... At, at 24, I think you said, 24 yep. years of age, where did this wisdom come from that you needed to shape the universe the way you wanted it to be? You know, I don't see a lot of 24-year-olds today with any wherewithal around something, nope. around that idea of just going and making the circumstances what you desire so that you can create the life you want to live. Where did that come from? I'm going to go back to the military. It was that, that attitude of, you know, if I set my mind to something, this is something I want to do. If I'm willing to pay the price, there's a chance. I mean, there's you, there's a time commitment. There's there's a commitment to anything you do. If you look at that with a sober, you know, attitude and say, "Look, am I willing to do what it takes? I can make it happen." So, and and then also somewhere around that time, learned to you know, read, I became a reader and started reading a lot of books. And that positive success mind attitude, you know, and I love all the classics. You know, Norman Vincent Peale. Actually, my very first book was Ogmandino, The the Greatest uh, greatest Miracle in the World. And I was not a reader before this, but a friend of mine who was, he kept telling me, you should read this book. You should check it out. And it's not very big. Mm-hmm. And literally, I got that book, finally, after him pestering me for like two months, read this book, or he gave it to me, read it, read it. Have you read it yet? Yeah, I'll get to it. Finally, I find one night I was bored, set. There was nothing good on TV. It was like a Friday night, I remember. So I opened this book up and about two in the morning that I finished it. I couldn't put it down. The story was awesome. So I've always encouraged people, if you're going to start reading, you're not a reader, check out Ogmandino. 
He's an amazing storyteller. Any of his books, frankly. Mm-hmm. It's a good place to start. They're short. They're easy. They're great stories. And then there's a, there's a message, obviously. That got me starting in reading. So, you know, I, I read all of his books then. And then I started branching out to other things like, uh, you know, Norman Vince Appeal, um, Nor- uh, Napoleon Hill, uh, a couple others. Acres of Diamonds is another one I remember reading. Is you know, kind of struck me as, you know, life changing. Pete, your friend Pete, I remember one day a while back asking, what's your top five books? I'm like, dude, that's a hard question to answer. So. <laughs> Because I've read so many one, different ones, and at different stages of my life, they've made different impacts, right? Right. But, but Augmandito is a great place to start for anyone. Mm-hmm. So to answer your question, it started with the military, gaining the confidence, then becoming, starting becoming a reader. And then, like I said, I read this. I wish I could remember that name of the book. That talk, I, I can't remember which one it was. It might have been Harvey Mackey, I think. Okay. The one where you, the envelope guy, mm. he wrote a couple of books. I can't remember the name offhand. But I think it might have been in that where he said, buy a business, you know, it has existing cash flow. There's interest. And um, and I think in that book, it also had a suggestion, hey, look for retiring or older business owners who are thinking about retiring mm-hmm. and then go to work in that business and learn that. So I got some advice from the books. And I'm like, huh, that makes sense. Am I willing to do what it takes? Thought about it a while. Sure. And so I got, yeah, I called all the, and I didn't call one or two nurseries. I called every single nursery in the Metro Phoenix area and handful of them responded. Most of them ignored me, but I think three or four got back with me. A couple, three were interested. And the one, that one ended up seemingly being the best fit. Amazing. So at 24 years of age, you're going into yep. this, this first business deal, I'm assuming at this right. point, or at least yep. your first major business deal. I'm My curious. First business of any kind. Yeah. First business of any kind. Okay. So complete right. newbie, but worked in the business a little while to learn it. Six months okay, to learn so it. Six and months. I worked all the different jobs during that six months to learn all the different aspects mm-hmm. intentionally. I, I, would, I think that's a fantastic way to, to know a business inside and out, right? Do all the jobs. You know what they intend. Do all the jobs. And then you basically introduced me as an intern. Mm-hmm. So I wanting to learn the industry. So every month I switch jobs. It's interesting that, uh, that you brought up that point because uh, I remember uh, my uncle had a fairly large company at one point and I started with his company as a delivery driver. It was a, a sure. rent-to-own furniture company, right? And I remember mm-hmm. I started as a delivery driver, then I went into collections, then assistant management, management, divisional vice president, then IT. And right. what I developed, what that developed in me to tie it back to our, our, our big concept of empathy here was empathy for all the people doing those other jobs. Because what I found right. was people who had only worked at the corporate office had no clue what was required no. in the field. And the people who were in the field right. had no clue what was required at the corporate office. And so exactly. you know, I think when you have your finger on the pulse of a business and you do understand, you know what, hey, this is what that person's experience is and that role, it makes right. you a better owner, a better manager, you know, just a, a, a better person to deal with in general. And of course, relationships are everything in business. Sure. So actually when, when the the, we agreed to the deal, and then he entered, then he announced that I would become the new owner. I already had relationships with all the staff, and understood their business, and had a boatload of ideas, mostly from them and the experience working with them. Hey, we're going to incorporate these. These are, this is a great idea. Let's incorporate. So, the the attitude with the company and the people was just phenomenal. Mm. Yeah, talk, talk about, about smooth transitions, right? Tremendously. That's fantastic. Yeah. So do you remember going back those years, do you remember how you structured that deal? Was it creative or was it just a straight purchase? 
uh, it was a straight purchase. Uh, about a third roughly was down and about two thirds was financed by the owner. Oh, so I had, I had some money, like I said, from the trust fund left over from college that I hadn't used cause I had gotten, uh, uh, a number of scholarships and various things through college, academic and music scholarships, actually. Uh, like I said, music's been good to me. I still play, <laughs> still play my bone anyway. Uh, uh, bass bone today, but, uh, yeah, so put some money down, like I said, and there was a favorable terms, low interest rate loan, paid them monthly based on the proceeds, you know, from the business, right? So I didn't have to put out a ton of money out of pocket to purchase the business. Right, right. Fantastic. So yeah. I'm curious, I feel like the whole old adage, if you will, or the uh, the saying that... Uh, uh, readers are leaders and leaders are readers yep. sort of a thing holds true right. no matter who I talk to in, in any aspect of life. And, you know, right. of course we've, we've all studied the greats, you know, if, uh, right. you know, the, you know, people who follow Buffett and Munger, you know, they know they read most of their yep. day. So I'm curious right. after you picked up that first book and you digested it and you started getting into that world, have you been a member of that reading world ever since? Yeah, that hasn't ever changed since. Um, because literally, um, you're absolutely right. Uh, I've learned and been told, but it's true. You know, we're a combination, the influences of our life, we're a combination of the people we hang out with and the books we read, or the input we, let's say, the input we put into our brains, right? Mm -hmm. No doubt about it. And so I find, like you said, leaders are readers, and they also are coaches. The other thing I don't hear a lot, though, I think is so powerful, and I've taught and trained like financial uh, agent, insurance agents, financial advisors now for 20 plus years, is it's not the smartest that succeed. It's the ones that are coachable and hungry. It takes those two characteristics to step out of the norm and do something different. Mm. Being an entrepreneur is not for everybody. Right, right. It, it just isn't. Know your strengths, know your personality, know what, you know, I, 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 my wife says, you're unhirable. I said, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> I've got too many ideas in my head, too many creative things. And I, I'm, I'm going off a million miles an hour, right? Right, right. I see something, hey, boom, let's go. Right. I don't think about what, I mean, I'll consider, okay, is there, what are the risks? Okay. All right. That makes sense. I'm willing to take that risk. Let's go decisions made now it's all action mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but you learn that like you said gaining confidence you learn that from you have to have you have to have a high motor in, in sports they talk about a high motor mm -hmm. right but I, i'm a big football fan i enjoy football you know they always talk about the defensive lineman who are the, the guy the pass rusher yep he's a, he's got a high motor he's always he's not all the guys on the field do do they that's right but that guy that pass rusher dude man he's always He's putting out full effort trying to get to that quarterback, isn't he? And once or twice a game, if he's really good, he'll, he'll succeed, right? Mm -hmm. Right? Beautiful. But what do the coaches look for? The guy with the motor. So mm -hmm. if you're an entrepreneur, you need to be that guy or gal with that motor. If you don't have it, I don't know if you can learn it. I don't know. I think it's personality. Mm -hmm. Realize that about yourself. And if you don't have that motor where you're willing to work till 2 in the morning because the job needs to be done, and nobody's over your head saying you got to get it done. You just know you need to get it done. If you're not willing to do that or that's not in your comfort zone, go get a good paying job. 
hundred percent. Get yeah. the best education, the best job you can get that you have some interest in. Definitely. It definitely pays to know yourself or it's going to save you tons and tons of pain <laughs> in life. Right. Totally. So I'm curious if the reading, you know, I, I talked to a lot of different people in the business world, entrepreneurial world, but, um, I'm wondering if the reading led you into what you might term personal development, the personal development world. I'm wondering if you've dabbled in that world or if you just stayed with the books or you stayed with your own path and developed yourself sort of instinctively along the way. I'd say most of it was focused inward on myself. I recognized that I had major challenges growing up. I had major confidence issues growing up. There are holes in my life, emotional development, things like that, relationship development. Um, so I felt like there were some definitely missing pieces that I didn't get that I needed to get from somewhere else. And becoming a reader now decades did a lot to fill that mm -hmm. and make me more of a well-rounded person, gain that maturity, gain a little more balance. Mm -hmm. And, of course, more the empathy and the confidence combined to do the things that I knew I wanted or needed to do. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's been a huge benefit. And for anyone who, again, is willing to, I, I, again, is co it has that desire, that, that desire to, be, to, to do something and is coachable about it. Uh, I love telling this little story. It's, it's, I think it, it nails it on the head. So this goes back 15 plus years ago. I had two, I was, I had two agents I was training, right? And one of the guys, these are two new insurance agents, one super successful, cocky even. He actually worked for Zig Ziglar as a trainer for Zig Ziglar. This guy was, I mean, present presentations, I've never seen anyone better. And, you know, the feel felt found method and all the different closing techniques. I mean, he taught it to Zig students in that whole environment. And so we would have an agent training meeting and I'd say, Brian was his name. I'd say, Brian. Uh, give us a feel felt found. Boom. He'd go up there for 10, 15 minutes. I mean, he nailed just like Zig. He was awesome. I had another guy who's from the corporate world. He's in his mid fifties, quieter, nice guy, had never done anything entrepreneurial in his life had never done anything like he never been on commission sales commission in his life, got downsized, decided he wanted to change his life realized that corporate environment wasn't for him anymore. He needed to make, make it go. So he had, he was hungry. He had the desire, did not have the experience, knowledge or anything. So we are having this meeting and Brian, I remember it was Brian, the, the guy with the zig zig thing. He says, he's remember he said something. He goes, you know, and by the way, he would close two out of three appointments. If he had three appointments, he'd make two sales as good as it gets. I've never seen anything better. Phenomenal. He goes, but he hated making phone calls. He hated prospects. He hated scheduling points. He goes, if I just get preset appointments, I'll go meet the people. I'll go make the sale. I said, that's, that's, I agree with you. Mark, by the, by, on the other hand, this guy would get on the phone and grind. He would call, he would call, and he would get 10, 12 appointments a week. He went, he went six weeks in a row without a sale. Wow. So he's meeting like 10, 12 people a week. He's meet 50, 60 people, not one sale. And he was getting frustrated. Sharp guy, smart, but getting frustrated. And I looked at him and said, Mark, here's the thing. And in the room, I said this to everybody. I like Mark's future better than Brian's. And I was like, gasp. Oh, my God, what are you talking about? I said, here's why. 
if Mark doesn't give up, Mark's a smart guy. He'll figure out how to close a sale eventually. And he, Mark's willing to work. Brian's not. And I said this in front of everybody, in front of Brian. He agreed. He goes, maybe, he goes, maybe I should hire uh, Mark to make my calls for me. I said, Brian, you could do that. But why don't you two spend a little time together and learn from each other? Brian, learn how to make how to set appointments. Mark's great at that. And Mark, why don't you listen to Brian about how to close sales? Because he's great at that. You guys are in the opposite extremes here. But Mark, you have the better you have the better future because give me 10 or 12 opportunities a week. What's going to happen eventually? The next week, Mark made his first sale. The next year, Mark was our number two sales guy. Wow. Wow. Uh, two months later, Brian was gone. He wasn't willing to do the work. Brian wasn't hungry. Right, right. I love so. that. I love that. When you, <laughs> you actually, you actually uh, took the question right out of my head. I was going to ask you what it looked like to be coachable and hungry, and that, that was the perfect illustration of what exactly. it looks like to be coachable. You got to be willing to learn. Yeah. Mark didn't have a fallback. He knew the corporate world was. He couldn't go back. Right. He wasn't going to be able to go back. Right. He goes, parents, I got to make this work. I don't, I'm in my mid fifties. What else am I going to do? Mm-hmm. I said, keep grinding, Mark. You're doing the right thing. You'll figure it out. You'll figure out what it takes. Mm-hmm. You're getting in front of people. You've got opportunities. You're not a dumb guy. That's right. That's You'll right. figure out what works for you. And you yeah, did. Absolutely, man. Consistency <laughs> wins all battles. It's one of those things, you know, if you're willing yeah. to take on some tools that are going to help get you there. Wow. Yeah. You know, and you have the work yep. ethic, you're going to get there. Yeah. Exactly. Amazing. So I know that um, prior to that story, you were talking about some of the emotional intelligence that you had developed, you know, coming out of the military, getting into your first business um, mm-hmm. and, and building from there, structuring your deal and all the rest of it. And then, you know, earlier you talked about at the age of, I think you said 27 or so, you finally had the wherewithal to deal with your father's loss. Yeah, I had another crisis that hit me that kind of triggered that. So, so about three years later, we buy this business. Things are going on great. I'm making more money than I ever had in any, you know, for recent college grad. I mean, I was rolling in it. I was like, this is awesome. Business was good and all that. Anyway, then the Gulf War hits. And I learned something. People stop buying plants when oil prices go up and the economy goes bad because that's a luxury. We had a forty. We had a forty percent uh, reduction in overgrowth sales. Of course, I had borrowed money to buy this business and everything. So the one thing the book I, so that's another thing I've learned since then. You can get some great advice from people or books or whatever, but one of the things the book didn't tell me is, well, you're taking on risk if you take on debt like that. Mm-hmm. Yes, you have a business that's cash flow day one, but if things go wrong, you still have that debt, that nut to crack each month. Well. Also in that, there was another piece that prior to that, about a year prior to that, I had gotten connected with um, uh, the Small Business Administration. Through, uh, I got involved with some business owner organizations, chamber of commerce, various things like that in the community. And they recommended SBA. And they had a program they still do. It's called SCORE. I highly recommend this for any young entrepreneur. And what SCORE is, it's free. And they have uh, experienced, typically retired business owners in the various fields, and for a year, the SBA will pay their fee to consult you, meet with you like uh, once a month for an hour or two, and consult you about your business, help you learn. It's a great pro. I mean, I'm not a big fan of government programs. I'll tell you that. I'm an entrepreneur. But that is one I am a fan of because mm-hmm. it it provides a, tr- it's a, it's a consulting service is what it is. Mm-hmm. And by the way, the, the 
I paid the guy the second year because the, the wisdom I was getting, he was a retired retail business owner. I'm owning a retail business. It was solid gold. So I paid him his fees the next year because it was so valuable to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so two years go into this, this is my third year in business. It's all four hits. Everything's going crazy. And we went on for about a year or so. And he finally, at one of our meetings, he said, look, you've done everything you can do. You today have your master's of business administration from the school of hard knocks. I'm like, great. He goes, you have three strikes. He has three things against you. You could have survived any two of the three. You're undercapitalized too much debt that hurt you. You could have survived that. If that's, that was the only issue. The economy took a dive on you. You could have survived those two, but you lacked experience, which you're gaining, but you didn't have it earlier. If you had two of the three, you would have survived, but you didn't have any of the three. Your best option my only option was I had to file a bankruptcy and, and get out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Amazing. At that point in my life, that was like, I consider that a major failure. I w- I literally, for a couple of months, I went, I wasn't diagnosed, but I went into a clinical depression. Like I didn't want to go anywhere, didn't want to do anything. I would sleep into one or two in the afternoon, no drive, nothing. Because I felt like I failed. Right. And all that stuff that I had felt when I was younger after losing my dad, lacking confidence. Now I've had a major blow to my confidence. I'm a failure. I've failed in a business, right? All that came back. I'd gotten involved in a church by that prior to that, around that time too. And there was, I, uh, and it was Phoenix First or Dream Center Church today. And had had a pretty good network of people I knew. I was in the music ministry. I played my trombone, so I got really involved with it, and loved you know loved it. Met a lot of great people, and there was a a network of people, some really good friends I got to know, that really helped me through some of that part. But also it helped me face my that stuff that had been I've been carrying for twenty years, right? So yeah, I uh, yeah, that's when I finally cried about losing my dad. What did that experience uh, look like for you? What did it teach you? Um, that it was okay to let go. Mm-hmm. That everybody goes through stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you don't have to hold on to it and hide it. I would never, I mean, I wouldn't talk about it. Okay. It just, I wouldn't um, prior to that. And it was just too painful. Mm-hmm. But I realized that I needed to, and I needed to, you know, because the reality is I came to realize that I felt like in some way I had failed my dad because you know, the rest of the story is, you know, he was a semi-professional soccer player in, in, in Europe. Uh, he, I'm half Hungarian. He escaped the Soviets in 56 when the tanks came in. He was a young man then. Um, he was quite successful, quite as he was, he had been a college competition swimmer. So this, this guy was athletic and we were at a soccer party a big party with all, he was a referee for the local soccer league that I was getting ready to join at seven. Mm-hmm. And, you know, somebody kicked the ball out into the lake. He went to swim out to get it and never saw him again. Mm-hmm. And, um, I had gone to the bathroom right before that. I was the ball boy. I was supposed to, you know, when they kicked the ball, I was the one that went out and got it. Mm-hmm. Unconsciously, I blame myself partially for it mm-hmm. because if it hadn't been, if I had gone to the bathroom, maybe I would have gone out there and gotten the ball. And maybe my dad wouldn't have drowned. Wow. And that was pretty heavy. Mm. And it took me a long time to realize that's 
the thing that was that I wouldn't talk about it. And I didn't even, it was so deep that I didn't even realize that was the problem all those years until I finally came, it came to a head where I'm a failure again. I'm a failure in business. I failed my dad. I failed in business. I'm just a failure. I'm, you know, I'm just, you know, I'm, 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 I'm a, you know, I'm worse than the scum on the bottom. Yeah. That's how I felt. And, um, so yeah, letting it go and just, you know, and I didn't just cry. I just bawled my freaking head off for a few days. I mean, it just all kind of came out like a flood. And it was amazing though, how there was some relief from all that. So it's kind of like, I just finally just let go and realized, you know what? I was a seven-year-old kid. What the heck could have I done differently? You know, why am I blaming it? You know, I, God has a plan. Stuff happens. We don't always understand it. To this day, I don't understand why he had, my dad had to go then. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, but it's not my responsibility to understand. Right. There's a plan. And I'm who I am today because of those challenges that occurred. You know, you know this, you know, coal turns into diamonds under pressure, right? We, there's verses in the Bible, I, I can't quote them, but there's stuff in there that talks about, you know, forging us, you know, iron sharpens iron, we get forged under pressure. Many success books talk about this, you know, we, you know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. What I've realized, and again, this is something that's taken me decades and decades, is when a challenge comes up, something that just kicks you in the, you know what's. You get sucker punched, right? You know what I'm talking about? I had a big sucker punch a few weeks ago. We can talk about it if you want. But what I've come to realize is, wait a minute. When a door shuts, slams in your face, there's, an again, there a window opens. Are you willing to go through the w- window? And if you actually stop and think about it a minute, you realize when there's no hope, this is boom. That's a, you know, that's it. All right, you realize, step back and say, okay, what's the lesson I need to learn? So I've gotten to the point now where I say, God, and I'm not here to preach, but that's what I do. I say, God, what am I supposed to learn here? What's the lesson? Because I don't want to have to go around and around and around in circles like I did for 20 years with my dad. I realized feeling like I was a failure for something that frankly wasn't my fault and holding me back emotionally all those years and failed relationships and all that junk, right? Mm-hmm. I don't want to do, I don't want to waste 20 years on this challenge. <laughs> so yeah, I'll get frustrated like we all do. I'll uh, sit back and I'll have, you know, I'll say, I'll tell my wife, you know what? I want to talk to you a bit. I'm going to have a beer. I'll, I'll chuck everything for a while. I'm frustrated. We'll talk it out. And then the next day I'll say, okay, what's the lesson? What am I supposed to learn? And it's amazing how when you do that with an open heart and open attitude, how the answers all of a sudden start to present themselves. Beautiful, beautiful, my friend. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was really interesting to listen to you talk about the failure aspect because yeah, you used the words "I am a failure" two or three times. That's as, how I felt as you described it. But yeah. obviously, you're not. You know, I mean, uh, that you came know, to looking, that conclusion eventually, right? Looking back today, you know, we can <laughs> right. we can say that you, that that this is empirically true that you're not a failure. <laughs> so I'm wondering, at what point did you stop that language and you realize that failure isn't who you are? It was just something that you experienced. Mm-hmm. Well, out of that, that was the biggest hole that losing that business 
I said about two months period. I just, yeah, again, felt like a total failure. And then, you know, we, I had enough money set aside to live on for about six months at that point. And we had some unexpected expenses, some big things happen. And literally it came down to, it was like, and I had a buddy of mine from the church who said, and I, and one of the things I had, a, I had a CD, uh, a commercial driver's license because we, in our, our nursery, we had the rock yard and I, I was the backup driver when our, both our drivers were sick or sure. gone. So I had the license to drive dump trucks so I could drive school buses or whatever. They started a school and they needed school bus drivers desperately. Well, I, I told Tim, I remember he said, Tim, no thanks, but no thanks. Tim, thanks for those. Every week he's bugging me. We desk, we need people. We need. And then all of a sudden, all this stuff happens, and we're like almost out of money. We're just, you know, we're not going to be able to eat soon. Mm-hmm. I got to do something. So one day I call him up, say, Tim, still open? He goes, Yeah, be here tomorrow. Great. So I started driving a school bus for uh, for kid, little these little kindergarten and you know driving kids back in school mm-hmm. from a school to a private school, a church thing, and. And I got close to this one little guy who's about six, seven years old, single, single mom. And he just like, you know, he just fell in love with me. You know what I'm saying? And he was just this cutest little guy and started, you know, really. And that's what brought me out. I was like, I could, I, I knew what it was like not to have a dad. And he desperately wanted a dad in his life, right? So I started taking an interest in him. We started doing some sports stuff. And, and his mom was, was really cool. She was like, yeah, you, anything you want to do with him, you let me know. Heck, I'll even pay for it. You know, took him to some ball games. We just did, you know, it's what you would do a dad son kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And he was so appreciative. And I guess what I realized in that is when you're hurting, absolutely the best thing you can do is find somebody who's hurting more than you. And then do something to help them. And that brought me out of my funk. Mm. Um, and then again, I started realizing, you know what? Life will kick you in the, in the, in the balls. Mm. And again, you're like, and then start thinking about my mom and all that kind of stuff. It's like, I'm going to get better. I'm going to get better. And I didn't want to go that route. You know what I mean? Mm. So that's why that was the beginning of coming out of that. So I was like, all right, what can I do? What skill sets do I have? What am I good at? And, you know, I filed bankruptcy. My credit score is shot. I got no money. You know, I'm not very hireable. (laughs) But I found out sales was something. You know, every business owner, you're a salesperson. You're selling your business, right? That's right. And I didn't know this about myself. I got a job. Uh, I got a job working for Orkin as a termite inspector because I'd done that kind of stuff in college. One of my jobs, and uh, thought I was good at it. And I became one of the top salespeople in the West Rocky Mountain region within six months, and all this stuff, right? And then corporate stuff happened, and I just didn't like it, so I moved on to another sales job and quickly learn that and then become their top salesperson. This repeated itself four or five times in a row over the next two, three years. I'd work somewhere three to six months. And because I was willing to work hard, I was willing to be coachable. I would learn their product or service. I'd go work hard and suddenly I became the top salesperson or one of their top salespeople. Mm. And then that led to, uh, and, but then a lot of, what I found is I deal with a lot of corporate stuff, corporate, I won't say the different companies cause I don't want to embarrass them, but corporate stuff would happen. 
and the manager of the store are making more than him and they would get frustrated and they would say, you're too good to fire, but you probably should leave. You're too, you're too, you're making us look bad. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I started learning that the corporate world wasn't really my, wasn't a good fit for me. That's interesting, right? Because you think, yeah. you know, you sold this line when you're growing up that the corporate world mm-hmm. is a meritocracy and that if you work hard, you can come to the top of the ladder. But I think the yeah. reality of, of the corporate world is it's about job security. And when people yep. are coming up, you know, it's almost there's almost this air of wanting to get rid of them because they're a threat to your position now. I had four or five of those experiences. That's crazy. And it repeated itself mm-hmm. with a number of very large companies. And what I came to realize is the leaders of those companies usually get there because they're not a leader in terms of leading, if you will. They're a leader because they're a good peacemaker. Mm-hmm. In fact, studies have been done. Most corporate CEOs are, a, uh, are uh, what's the uh, personality type, the phlegmatic, some people call that. Mm. It's the one that gets along with everybody. Right. The guy like who placates of, everyone, yeah. Yeah. About 80% of corporate CEOs are that personality type. Because they don't ruffle anybody's feathers. They get, they, they're peacemakers. They get everybody working together. And so everybody likes them. They're nice people. And they, they work, they, they're the ones that end up rising to the top. Yeah, it almost seems like more of a political position than a performance-based position, right? Pretty much in most cases. There's exceptions. But mm-hmm. in most cases, yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So at this so, point, in, at this point, when you're, you know, you're, you're going from sales job to sales job, I'm assuming that you're kind of rebuilding at this point, mm-hmm. right? And yep. things are starting to change uh, for the better because you are out there performing. Right. And obviously at some point you go into business again. Yeah. And so what, what so my, led you back into business? So this is my fourth or fifth sales job. I'm at Home Base, which is a competitor at Home Depot. They're no longer in business anymore, so I can talk about them <laughs> <laughs> without ruffling any feathers. <laughs> I'm working at the Indian School, 33rd Avenue in Indian School. I'm one of those kitchen cabinet designers, right? Right. And there's three of us guys in that in that department, and there's eighty. I remember there's 86 stores nationwide at the time. They were in the top bottom or top. I mean, bottom 10 every, every month for seven years in a row, three months later, we're in the top 10 in sales. And I'm one of the, I'm the new guy. There's only three of us. It starts getting all the corporate bigwigs at attention. So all of a sudden I start seeing a lot of these suits showing up, asking questions. They have this big conference. Uh, they asked me to speak with all the kitchen cabinet designers all around the country. All I did, it was really simple. So a, a cabinet designer would design a cabinet or kitchen, like, you know, like a couple would want a new kitchen. And you and back then, again, it was CAD stuff that was pretty advanced at the time. It's before a lot of computer stuff. We were talking 25 years ago, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, you know, you would show these 3D pictures of these cabinets, colorized and everything. But I was, I was like magic back then. So usually, you know, the wife would fall in love with it. Done deal. That's, you know, that's the kitchen we want. And the question would be, how much? And what they would do is say, well, it's X amount of dollars. And then the next question was, well, how much installed? Well, we have three installers. You can quote, you know, them and blah, blah, blah. Well, we got paid a salary plus 2% commission on the sale. I had worked with one of the installers. That's how I got in that job. By the way, I'd been an estimator before that. I said, I've got all the estimate sheets. If you change your prices, let me know. But if it's okay with you, I'm going to quote the jobs installed, which doubles the price of the average job, which doubled my commission. And doubled our sales. Duh. (laughs) And guess what? The customer was happy. They didn't have to go shopping around. I said, 
Here's the quote, install price with this contractor. I used to work with them. I happen to know they're good. If you want to talk to these other two, you can. But Lisa gives you something to go by. Mm-hmm. And like, no, that's cool. If you think they're good, let's do it. And But what ended up happening was is the assistant store manager thought I was starting to gun for his job. I wasn't. It would have been a pay cut and more hours. Right. So we had this big meeting with the store manager and the assistant manager and sitting in their office. And the store manager literally said to me, you know, you're too good an employee to fire, but I think it's best if we um, part ways because, well, I was making more than both of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you're, he said that. You're, he was honest. You're making us look bad. <laughs> and I looked at him and I said, I think you're right. <laughs> and I had a buddy of mine who was in the landscape business. He said, you, you used to do sprinkler work and stuff. I had a landscape company with my nursery business three or four years prior. Right. And he says, I, I need I, I need a sprinkler guy, and I know you were great at that, and that's kind of a specialty in the in the landscape world. So I, I said, you know what? He goes, and I've got like four or five jobs I could give you right now. Called him up. I said, we're on. Um, so I started becoming, I became a sprinkler contractor, started a company. Within six months, had two crews. I was doing con- uh, commercial and residential sprinkler work all over the valley. Got became a specialist uh, pretty quickly in the historic districts. I did a lot of jobs in the Encanto district and all those areas. So, because I also found out something real simple. If you're, by the way, if you have a contracting business, especially if you're a landscaper or doing any kind of work, you put your sign up with your phone number. And as they see all, you know, you do a full blown landscape and it's beautiful. Guess what all the neighbors want? <laughs> Everybody's driving by your sign. Next thing you're out there, you're doing bids on all the neighbors. You do a job and once one, so I usually low ball or low bid the first job in a new neighborhood. And I would end up doing four or five, six more jobs in the same neighborhood. Yeah. Imagine that, right? Duh. Imagine doing a good Smart job people. and then letting word get out about doing a good job for a fair price. I got busier than our, I got busier than I, I had to get a second crew. I mean, all kinds of stuff. I just, I mean, within a year it just took off mm, just by doing a good job. Mm-hmm. It's interesting how much of this comes back to just your ability to communicate though, you know, like, uh, mm-hmm. Your ability to communicate with the the contractor who installed the cabinets, your ability to communicate, you know, with now, uh, you know, people who are looking to have their landscape done. And it seems like a lost art in the modern world uh, in a lot of sense. People just are unable to communicate an idea in an effective manner. I think a lot and and, and a lot. You're right. Uh, A lot of that comes from the reading, a lot of reading. Um, Get involved if you're not a great speaker, you're uh, that's. You know, what is it? Toastmasters and those mm-hmm. kinds of groups are great groups. I mean, if you want to become a better communicator, it's a skill set. I wasn't a, I was not a good communicator as a young man, period. That's a learned skill. And if you practice that skill, like any skill, you're going to get better over time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Would you so. say like looking back at just at, you know, at your career over time, you know, would you say mm-hmm. that that was probably one of the top skills to develop oh. in getting anything that you want? No question, hands down. Um, and I gained that skill set probably, probably with the nursery business, becoming a business owner, starting to communicate with all the different employees first as a coworker, then taking over the company, then working with all the staff, and then of course customers, vendors, and everything else. You're dealing with a lot of people all the time, mm-hmm. and you're naturally, you know, your communication skills are going to get improved. Right. Out of necessity. <laughs> right. Yeah. You got to get paid somehow, right? <laughs> yeah. And, I, and, and one of the things I tell in communication is I tell people all this time, if you're struggling with that, 
the basics. Start with the basics. And the basics I, I like call drive-through communication. You've probably heard this. And the great analogy is you're going through a drive-through and you're ordering a burger shake and a fries, for example. And what is the what does the person on the other side of the speaker always respond with? Sir, you wanted a burger and shake and fries, right? Yes. And you confirm it. And that's so whenever you can communicate with somebody, the simplest form of learning to communicate, and then you can build on this. But as first as you're trying to communicate an idea with somebody and you're trying to find out what it is they want, you ask them what they want. Just ask them. They'll tell you. And then you use drive through communication. You said, now you said to me you wanted ABC, right? Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't you say you wanted ABC? And what are they? Yes. I said, well, if I can help you get ABC, would that interest you? Of course, that's what they want, right? Then I start providing ABC. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's not <beautiful>. complicated. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I've ever heard it phrased that way. But it's definitely. one of the books I read. I couldn't tell you which one. Yeah, for sure, <laughs> for sure. Uh, a lot of the techniques run together after a while. If, once you've made it part of yourself, you know, part of part of yeah, what I got do, a huge library. Both my office and home books are everywhere, and Amazing. I've read all those things. Feel like people come to. A, in my office where you've read all yeah some of them several times mm -hmm. yeah, it's interesting that you, you led with the uh, the, the drive-through communication piece because I feel like a lot of times one of the keys to getting that first little door open with someone is mm -hmm. just mirroring a few words that they gave to you it just it yeah it, I think it demonstrates to them at least it demonstrates to me when I hear someone use the same words I use that they were actually paying mm -hmm. attention to what I said exactly the, the number one complaint of all communication and this applies for the sales world or anything else for that matter. The number one complaint is always, I don't feel like the person is actually listening to me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what's the best way to resolve that? Ask them what they want and then repeat back to them. And I love saying that word. Correct me if I'm wrong, but Jason, didn't you just tell me you wanted a, a burger shake and fries? <laughs> you know, I was listening, right? That's right. That's right. Beautiful. So did <laughs> yeah. this did this ultimately lead you into the real estate world from the landscaping uh, world? Let's see. Let me think, oh, uh, no, there's a roundabout. There's a couple other twists and turns yeah. to get there. So so I've got this con sprinkler contracting business. Right. And we're mm -hmm. doing we expand into full blown landscaping. So we're, you know, we're doing whole big landscape jobs and all this now. And I got about three years later, I got into two back to back car accidents. I got rear ended twice. A month apart and the first one didn't bug me too much the second one man i was laid i was laid out for weeks uh, chiropractor and they were talking surgery it, it was bad and of course you can't do contracting work if you can't even lift five pounds right no definitely not so we struggled i went back to one crew things weren't you know if the if the boss ain't there folks are not working right so things are not going well and jobs are getting delayed and, jo and quality of the work's going down. And, you know, again, we prided ourselves on doing a good job and um, lots of problems. And I don't know three, four months later, I'm finally getting back on my feet to where I could get out in the jo job site and actually do something. And I remember I was in this uh, Scottsdale and this big, uh, we're doing this big sprinkler job for a horse property. And I remember we were behind schedule and all that because I'd been laid up and I'm laying there gluing pipe literally and, and stuff, you know. And literally every five minutes, I'm laying, I have to lay on my back because my back's just killing me, right? And this went on for about a half a day. And I lay, I remember laying there after a while. I said, I looked at the sky and I just, oh, you know what? The door closes, right? 
okay, I get it, God. I can't do this anymore. It's just not in the cards. You're slamming a door. What do you want me to do now? So we finished up those jobs and stuff like that. And I realized I can't do blue collar stuff anymore. I've been, a, you know, been in the nursery business. I grew up on a farm contract for sprinkler. You know, I was a landscape contractor. It's all blue collar stuff, right? Sure. I got to find a white collar job. I got to do something that I can't, you know, I can physically do and not tax my back. Cause it took another year or two before I got full speed with my back. So I was like, I knew I was good at sales. And so I started looking for sales jobs and it was again, serendipity little things. I see this job for selling living trusts. And I said earlier, my dad, my parents had had a trust and I had gotten some money from the trust fund to help pay for college and bought my first business. Mm-hmm. Of course, those dollars were gone by then, but it had helped me get on my feet. So I understood how trusts work personally. Mm-hmm. So I, I talked to them, interviewed them, and it was that empathy. They weren't, they were hiring, but I had no experience. They really weren't interested in me. But I think it was that communication and empathy when I told the interviewer, it turned out to be the owner of the company, that my story of my personal story of what, how, with what a trust had done for me and my family. And he came back later. He says, you know, I don't, I wasn't going to hire you, but I'm going to take a chance on you. I love your story. And um, I struggled at first. It was a total changeover because we did trust. We did annuities, retirement planning, all this financial stuff, which I had no background in really. Mm-hmm. But I learned like everything else. What, and it's kind of a funny story. One of the guys, he was the top, top producer at the time, the first three months I was there. In the fourth month, I beat his record. <laughs> Four months in. Wow. <laughs> I was a sponge. Yeah. I knew I didn't know anything. So I'm asking everybody questions. I'm going out on rides with them. I'm like, but to his, this guy's credit, a couple months later, he said, would you, his name is Marco. I still, we're still buddies today. He said, I got to give this guy credit. He said, can I ride with you one day? I want to see what you're doing. I said, really? He says, yeah. He goes, I was the top guy. You came along. You're killing me now. I want to know what you're doing. Okay. So he rode with me one day and we talked all day about what I was doing. We did four appointments and it was my first real sales training. I'm training the guy that used to be the top guy. Now I'm the top guy, right? right. I just showing him, teaching him what I was doing. He goes, wow, and he's, he's taking notes, right? Mm-hmm. And he's like, I, I never heard this. This is awesome. So I've never done any sales training or anything because he'd done all that stuff. I've never heard this. I said, well, this, I try things and I figure out what works and then I just do more, do, just repeat it, mm-hmm. right? So... I realized, hey, I'm actually good at this and communicating with people and helping set up estate plans and retirement and all this kind of stuff. And it's kind of funny. I'm looking at one of these trophies here. Um, Not even a year later, I get invited to one of the top producer conferences, right? And the guy I was working for was new in the business too, by the way. I was his top guy now. I hadn't been there like, I had not even, I've been there eight months. (laughs) And we get this trip to Barcelona and then London. And oh, and in Barcelona, we're there and they have the big, the last night of the event, they have this, you know, the big award ceremony and they're naming off the names, you know, bring, there's like, I don't know, a hundred or so top producers in the country with this company. And the names keep going off. The names keep going off. I'm sitting next to this guy, Paul, he's my boss. And he's like, where did you end up this year? I asked him, where did I end up this year? He goes, I have no idea. And they kept going. Each one's higher and higher, the numbers, right? And I and so we're both like, maybe they forgot about you. And I'm like, I think they did. There's no way. I, I didn't do that much. 
and they keep going and they keep going. And it turns out I'm number 12 in the company, in the wow. country. Wow. <laughs> Neither of us had a clue. Hmm. The boss myself, we didn't know what we were doing. We just knew we were just going out and helping people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We weren't chasing the numbers. We weren't paying attention to the numbers. We didn't have any idea what the numbers were even supposed to look like. We were both too new to know any better. Right. It and just, I got this big eagle, and, and give me an idea how green I was. So they're taking my picture. I'm standing there with the CEO of this big financial institution. This is big old eagle, right? He's we're in Barcelona, Spain, and I'm looking at this thing, and I'm like, "This is how green I am." I look at him. I say, "Do I have to take that in my suitcase? It won't fit." <laughs> <laughs> he laughs. He kind of looks at. Me, he goes, "No, we'll ship it to you at home. This is just for the picture." Yeah, we'll oh, ship good. that bad boy. <laughs> Too funny. <laughs> I've got three. I've got three of those eagles. <laughs> That's amazing. You know, the the key point that I'm pulling from that story that I think is super super interesting is that you got to show you. Oh man, you got to see this. Oh there, wow, this, this is the London eagle. Oh wow, and you see it? That, that's, that's not going to fit in my suitcase. That's massive. Yeah, no, <laughs> that would be considered a weapon today, right? Exactly. Yeah, you can. Yeah, you wouldn't be in carry on. No way. Yeah, you wouldn't be, wouldn't be able to bring that on the plane for sure. <laughs> that was in 2001. So London, England, 2001. Amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, and and you know the interesting thing I took from that story was the fact that you guys actually both of you, even though you were in competition you were both asking questions and then the fact that the guy that mm -hmm. you overtook came back and was willing to humble himself and ask questions of you like he was now taking yeah. notes from you there was there was no ego in the learning i guess you would no. say and I, that seems like such yeah. a lost art or maybe maybe oh. it's not a lost art but a but a skill that isn't taught you know that your questions are right. more valuable than your answers kind of a thing and again he was one of the top i mean he was really good at what he did so again he was very successful but he was coachable mm -hmm. and he did one other thing for me that I had forgotten about years later. He actually came to work for me later when I started my own company. Mm -hmm. But, um, he goes, Ference, he goes, you remember that day we went out and I rode with you and this was like, you know, this is a decade or so later and he came to work for me. I said, yeah, I remember. He goes, you remember I taped you that day? I'm like, did you? He gave me the cassette tape. Oh really? He had it. He kept it. He still had it. That's amazing. And he goes, and he, and he rode with, he went with me on an appointment then this is a decade or so later. He goes, Ference, he goes, I want to give you this tape because here's why. The presentation you did with me today is almost identical to what you did when I that day I rode with you a decade or so ago. Mm -hmm. He says, You haven't changed hardly anything. There's some updated information, of course, but the approach and how you do it. I said, Marco, why would I change it? It works. That's right. If it works, it works. <laughs> don't don't right. fix it. Yeah. Right. Amazing. He was amazed by that. <laughs> That's fantastic, brother. Well, I know yeah. that um you know, your story, obviously, we're just we're getting into some of it. It's super, super rich. And I could probably do like mm -hmm. 20 hours with you just collecting information. But <laughs> I, I want to talk some, about myself that much. <laughs> uh, well, I want to get to some some key points uh, and I yes. want to get to your current business and I want to respect okay. your time. Obviously, you've had a long week and I appreciate you doing <laughs> this. It's late Friday afternoon and I'm sure you'd right. rather be taking a nap right now. But um, well, maybe I got a massage scheduled in a couple hours. Yeah, you I'm got a massage coming week, up, right? The right way. Yeah. So, so I'm wondering if you could uh, fast forward a moment to the real estate business and right. pull a couple of yeah. nuggets out of that because I know that you lived through the massive disaster that was 07, yeah. 08. And then right. I want to jump into your current business where we're talking a little bit more about money. I'm really interested in getting right. to the money piece for sure. Sure. Okay. So basically the real estate, I'm, I'm still working for this guy, right? And Two or three, a couple of years later, um, I meet with my CPA, making a bunch of money. He says, look, you're getting creamed on taxes. You need some deductions. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, what do you recommend? He said, well, real estate has a lot of deductions. So that's my intro, intro to real estate. And again, serendipity, 
go home that night. There's a Carlton Sheets advertisement. My CPA <laughs> just told me I should do real estate for tax purposes. Right. There's a Carlton Sheets advertisement. And I look at my wife. She's like, let's get the book. So we bought the book, read the book. It was a lease option book. Yep. That makes sense. So we started buying real estate. And um, we bought about 30 properties over the next three years. Three-year lease options. Because that's what the book said to do. The mistake I made is I didn't keep reading more books in the real estate. I kind of took that Carlton Sheets supposed to be the, you know, kind of took it for gospel and followed it. What happened was about three years later, we started getting all these properties back mm-hmm. because people with bad credit typically don't change their credit. One qualified out of the 32 or 33 we did in those three years. My real estate agent at that time then said, well, I, I've got an opportunity to buy some land. I've got a contractor. We can build the roads, bring in everything and build houses and sell them, we can make a bigger profit, which did happen. The mistake I made was, now again, I'm listening to, to this real estate agent, and I realized later, if I had re-rented the properties, I'm making about 300 per month at that time per house, or I could sell and make 30,000 mm-hmm. net of all fees. Yeah, I was greedy, I took the 30,000, but I should have kept them because the reason he made the, the recommendation was, well, he would get more tra- he'd get more sales. If he okay. sold the properties, if I kept them, he wouldn't. Mm-hmm. So he really gave me some bad advice, to be frank with you. Right. Um, but I didn't know that at the time. So we buy the land. We buy five acres. We build five properties. A year later, I've made 85% return on my money. Like this is, And I basically didn't do anything. Put the money down and let them do all the work. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, this is cool. I made a fateful, fateful statement. This is where you start getting cocky. Well, that was easy. Let's do it again. <laughs> <laughs> Buy five more acres in uh, a county pocket in uh, Cape Creek, Scottsdale area. Uh, we built two or three more houses there. The last one we built saw uh, sold well, it appraised for one point eight million. This is oh seven. Year later, it appraised for five fifty. Mm. So like North Scottsdale area, I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah. So there's a there's some county pockets, Tatum and. They see Tatum and Joe Max area, if you know that area. I'm very familiar with that area. Actually, I yeah. uh, used to live in that area. All right. So if you go to, I forget, it's, um, what did we call that street? It's a circle. I can look it up. There's a castle house there. That's the last one we built. It looks like a castle. It's got the turrets and everything. We built that. Okay. Um, it's like 44th Street, just south of Joe, Joe Max. Mm-hmm. It's back in a corner on a cul-de-sac. Can't remember the name of the cul-de-sac. It's been years ago. But we built like seven, eight houses in there. Uh, we bought some more. And, of course, 0809 hits. We owe about $1.75 in, in mortgages. Mm-hmm. Um, the properties at that time appraised for about three and a half. Mm-hmm. And, of course, they went from about three and a half to one and a half mm-hmm. in about a year. Wow. Amazing. I was advised by two um, BK attorneys to file bankruptcy. But I had a problem. I still had the financial agency the retirement planning and all that kind of stuff. It took a hit in 08 also, but it was now our only source of income. Right. If I did the file bankruptcy, I would have lost control of the business. So I decided to start negotiating with the banks, did a short sale in 08 back when the banks said to me, what's a short sale? Mm-hmm. I researched what a short sale was, gave them the information, and they figured it out. Mm-hmm. Two years later, there's agents who are short sale experts. Right, of course. <laughs> so I was ahead of the curve, unfortunately. We did some foreclosures. All, I mean, it was very frustrating because I had a couple of properties I was dealing with. Uh, they're no longer in business. This bank doesn't surprise me. But I, I told my real estate agent, this was in the midst of the mess. 
and it was M&I Bank. They're no longer in business. They were they're based out of Michigan or Minnesota. I'm sorry, and they had banks here, and they were say I was talking to them weekly, and they were like, "Oh, you guys are over exaggerating what's going on there down there in Phoenix." I said, "No, get off your butts, get on a plane, and get down here and see what's really happening," and they just wouldn't do it. And I told my real estate agent, "Drop the price five grand every week and get me an offer. I don't care what it is." I finally got offers about seventy five percent of what I owed. Took them to the bank, said, "Take these, take them, please." They wouldn't. Wow. Year later, they foreclosed. Year later, they, they sold it for about half of the offers I'd given them. Amazing. Amazing. I started learning a lot about banking, hated banks at that point. But about two years, I unwound all that, creamed our credit, of course, all, unwound all that real estate and all those deals, but kept my financial business, mm-hmm. kept our income. And at that point, was trying to understand why I had to go through all that, why I didn't know any better, all this stuff. And then a couple, three, a few years later, finally started getting back on our feet again. I run into this personal bank concept. Now, understand I'm doing IRAs, 401ks, annuities, been one of the top producers in the country. You know, we did a million mailers a year. We did the dinner seminars, you know, all this stuff. Knew nothing about cash value life. Knew very Had learned some about banking from my real estate experiences. But suddenly realized, wait a minute, where has this ever, where has this been my whole life? Mm-hmm. What I didn't realize is what most people think of as life insurance is death benefit protection. Right. Okay. You know, you pay the minimum amount of premium for the maximum death benefit. And that's frankly probably 99% of policies out there that exist, right? Mm-hmm. What most people don't realize, and I didn't for many years, was wait, that if you think of a teeter-totter, you put cash on one side and death benefit on the other, most are structured that way. But you know what? You can flip that teeter-totter. Mm-hmm. You can maximize cash and minimize death benefit. So yes, there is one, but the main purpose is to maximize grow cash. And by the way, it grows tax-deferred. You can, If you structure it correctly, you can access it tax-free. So right. I said, wait a minute, I can grow money tax-free. I have access to the money. I have guarantees on what, what the returns are. By the way, historically, 5 to 8%. Okay. I have access to the money. I can use it and still earn interest on it. They're like, yeah, where's this been my whole life? Why didn't I know about this when I was investing in real estate? Maybe I wouldn't have lost some of those properties, right? Mm-hmm, right. I, as I learned more about it, I gained a passion because I realized if I had known about this when I was heavy into real estate investing, my story would have been different. So like my wife said, she goes, Don, she goes, she's been married almost, I keep bringing her up. Don's, we almost, we're coming up on 20 years. I got an awesome partner. Oh, congratulations. By the way, that's a big that's part fantastic. of success. That's fantastic. <laughs> Huge, yeah. I have to say that. Yes. Get the right partner. You will not outrun a bad partner, that's for sure. Totally. I can't, you know, there's no doubt that's a big part. And she's my confidant and best friend and... There, you know, I'll say, Don, I, I, I need to talk about something. This has happened. I need your, I need your insight. And there's no one better than understand. And she walked, she's a post master's degree, human behavior. Uh, she used to be a counselor. I have a phenomenal partner and supporter. So that's helped me through a lot of these things I've told you about. <laughs> yes. I but imagine anyway, so. Totally. Lucky so you. So anyway, uh, and like I said, I'd gotten through, I'd gotten through my crap in my mid-20s, so I could actually be uh, – by the way, if you want a great – uh, there's something else I always have taught. If you want a 10, first got to become a 10. Mm-hmm. 
if you're a five, you're going to attract fives, right? That's right. And I'm talking about not how you look. I'm talking about who you are as a person, who you are on the inside. 100%. Right? 100%. So if you don't like what you're, if you, you don't like you, what you're attracting around you, then step up your game, your emotional game, right? That's right. That's right. So I guess I must be okay because I got a 10, okay? <laughs> <laughs> 20. She's put up with me for 20 years. As long as and she thinks so, right? As long as she yeah, thinks well, that I, I you're, you're, you're doing well. That was my best sales job in my career. I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> best closing I ever did. But anyway, I got off track. But anyway, uh, where was I? So, um, so uh, before, oh, you, yeah. b- before you jump back on track, let's, yeah. um, let's just pause for a quick second and talk a little bit yeah. about insurance products. Uh, I, yes. I, was, I was listening to your most recent radio show, and I almost took yeah. issue with something that you said. Okay. You said there's no such thing as a bad financial tool. Yes. And I understand what you're saying, but my mind immediately went to bad insurance products. All right. And, you know, so I'm thinking like right, term me, life, for example. You the, okay. So you missed the rest of the statement. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's talk about that. What I say, and I say this all the time. You're right. I say this very frequently on the radio, uh, workshops, everything. There's no such thing as a bad financial tool. There are definitely bad fits. Right. I see I see bad fits all the time. Mm-hmm. You mentioned term insurance, right? Mm-hmm. All right. You give me a financial tool and I can give you a situation where it's a great fit. Okay. Mm-hmm. So let's take term insurance since you brought that up. Sure. You have a young couple, not much income, maybe kids, whatever. One breadwinner, for example. Mm-hmm. And that breadwinner wants to make sure his loved ones are taken care of if something happens to him. Right. Term insurance is cheap. It's all you can afford right now. It's not a permanent solution, but for the te- term is, is what exactly like it says. It's a solution for a term or a period of time, right? Mm-hmm. Some people try to use term as a term as a long-term solution. It's not designed for that. It's designed for a certain period. Most term is 10, 20, 30 year term, right? Mm-hmm. So for that term or that period of time, it can be a great fit. Right. The second reason behind it is a lot of convertible term. In other words, at some point when you are earning more income and the ability to fund more, you can convert it without any proof of insurance, insurability. So if you have a health issue in the future, or you're young and you're healthy, you qualify, it's cheap, then down the road, even if you have health issues, you can still get that permanent insurance where you cash growth and all the things we talk about and grow that money tax-free. So I do a lot of term for those young, I just did one last week, 26-year-old mm-hmm. young guy, really sharp, new real estate investor, he's probably going to do great things. He doesn't have much money yet. We're doing term, and his goal is in about a year to convert it. Right. It's 26 bucks a month for $1.2 million. Not bad. Exactly. Not bad. That's where term is a great fit. And that makes a lot but of tr- sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. I think people uh, try to use it for... They try to use certain financial tools for the wrong purpose. Right, right. And I think a, a lot fit. of people a lot of people listening probably don't even know what these policies uh, even represent. You know, when I think of term right. insurance being sold, for example, to an older person, you know, like I think of this person this person well basically betting on their death. You know, I'm I'm betting that well, I'm going to die in uh, you know in okay, 10, but, 20, 30 right. years, right? I'll give you an example, uh, Jason. I've been doing this a long time. <laughs> I'll give you an example where term can be a good fit for an older person. Okay, sure. All right, he had a business failure. He had some financial challenges. He's had a setback, but he still has death benefit protection needs for his loved ones. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have the money to fund 
the cash he needs to grow cash or invest in other investments. But he needs that death benefit protection still. All right, let's say get some cheap term convertible. And when you do have some more money and get back on your feet, you can convert it. And by the way, a lot of the companies will credit those premium you paid for a year or so to the new cup, new product. Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. So now he's yeah. got, in essence, free insurance for a year while he's struggling financially. COVID has brought that up with a lot of people, right? Sure. So it's, again, a tool. It's a solution for a period of time. Mm-hmm. Okay? So it has its sense. place. Absolutely. So I'm not negative to term. Absolutely. I'm negative when it's in the wrong fit. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And I the round peg straight yeah, the round peg square hole syndrome, right? Right, exactly. Put the round pegs in the round pegs and put the square pegs in the square holes, right? Right, right. <laughs> and you know, that's it's beautiful the way that you frame that too, because you know, from yeah. I think a lot of people confuse uh sales with pressure when in real reality you're educating. So like I'm learning as I'm oh. talking to you. So I'm asking yes. questions and I'm learning. Like I didn't even know there was such a thing as a convertible term. Right. Right. It costs a bit more, but it's such a small, like 10% more. So this guy, this young guy, $26, I said, you can find cheap. I can get you uh, term insurance, $1.2 million for 20 bucks a month, or for about 26 bucks a month, I can get it convertible. And then they'll credit you all the money you paid over the last year if you convert it. Right. Because, well, that's a no-brainer. <laughs> now, now, one of the products that is... excuse me, super, super interesting. And everyone Mm -hmm. listening should pay attention to this. I don't care who you are. You should pay (laughs) attention to this and we're going to get into this. Um, And this is the whole idea behind your personal bank, the bank of you, a 704 account, whatever you want to call it. It goes by a thousand different names, but we want to get into this. But before we do, would you please just take a quick moment of time and just give maybe a 30-second elevator pitch on the different types of primary insurance before we get to maybe whole life. Okay. There are five types of insurance that exist out there. Term we've already talked about. That's the first one. Again, no cash, purely a death benefit protection tool designed for a certain period of time, a term. Okay. And we talked about some of the reasons why that can make sense. Okay. The other one is variable life. Variable life is something where you're, in essence, basically investing in the, the markets, stock market, there's an underlying asset, an index fund, whatever, and your returns and the cash growth, there's a death benefit associated, but the cash growth is based on the index, right? So markets go up, you make money. If they go down, you lose, okay? That is designed for, and but there's, but all these cash value type insurance policies I'm talking about, if they're structured correctly, can grow tax-free and you can access tax-free. So what's that variable life good for? That high income earner, high tax bracket person who can handle some risk. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I share that with, I've seen a lot of people with variable life or variable annuities, which fit in the same arena, who are older, conservative, and I tell them what it's for. And then I ask a simple question. Does this sound like this fits you? And they'll immediately say, well, no, we got to find the tool that does, don't we? So that's variable life. There's universal life. Universal life is basically based, there's usually some guarantees in returns. Um, about 4% these days is what we see in universal life. Okay, you've got a death benefit associated, so you're going to grow your money probably in the 4 to 6 range, long-term, tax-free. It's got some guarantees, some consistency, so if you're looking for that safety, consistency, there's, there's an option there. There's a hybrid called IUL, or Index Universal Life. You have to understand UL before you can understand IUL. The strengths of UL, I mentioned, safety, consistency, growth. Mm -hmm. The weaknesses, it's designed for a younger person. Here's why. 
the cost of insurance is, is cheaper in the early years and grows each year. So somebody, rule of thumb, age 50, if you're under that, UL, the cost of insurance is cheaper, therefore fees cheaper, your cash grows faster, right? Mm -hmm. When you get past that age 50 point, the opposite starts to happen, right? Higher fees, higher cost of insurance, less cash growth. Agents are famous for wanting to show IUL, and I call them weak salespeople, for, and I say it to their face, because <laughs> they can show great returns, illustrations in those first decade or so, especially on a younger person. Right. But it's not designed for a lifetime. Right. So that's the problem. And IUL, hybrid of UL, is instead of the money growing steady, it's now based on an index. Most of the time, S&P 500 or other indexes. And the advantage of it is the money can grow up to a certain amount with the principal being guaranteed. So most products have what they call cap rates and fees. Is what I teach people all the time. That's the three moving parts on an IUL, whether it's an index universal life or an index annuity, by the way, they work exactly the same way. And um, what are your caps, rates, and fees? That's how you tell if you've got a good one or not. I can tell you right now today, 20, uh, what is weird? This is July, 2020. We have IULs, some of the best ones out there, that you can get 14% cap. In other words, you can make up to 14% per year with a 1% floor. So remember, the principal is guaranteed, but they're also guaranteed a 1% return on mm -hmm. a bad year. Okay? And that's it. So here's what I say to people on an IUL. You're in the S&P 500. You're going to make somewhere between 1% and 14% every year. Mm -hmm. Depends on what the S&P does. The average, the last 25 years, 852 mm -hmm. on that product. Tax-free. A lot of people out there trying to make it more complicated than it is. It's not. That's how it works. If they're making it more complicated, you can pretty much bet they're probably a competitor. Mm -hmm. They're probably somebody Wall Street focused who doesn't want you to really look at that. My analogy, most people who are sports fans understand New York Yankees and Boston Red Sox fans don't like each other a whole lot. The analogy <laughs> is ask a Boston Red Sox fan what they think the chance of the Yankees are next year. Right. Probably not going to hear a lot of good, right? Mm -hmm. The last one is a whole life product. Now, whole life, a lot of, again, gets a lot of flack. What's it designed for? It's called whole life because the cost and fees of insurance are the same or level for your whole life. Okay? So that means you know they, it has, so it has the underlying guarantees. You know, and by the way, historically, those pay somewhere around high fours to 8.5% range. Currently, we have products that pay six, six, a little over 6 I can show you whole life companies that have paid 6% or more for the last 25 years in a row. Mm. A-plus rated, all of that. I said it on the radio. It's going to air next week. If you're looking for a dividend payer, a dividend stock, or a bond or something like that, how would you like 6% tax-free? From a company that's paid it every year for the last 25 years, never missed a dividend in over 100 years, including the Great Depression. Stop looking for things that don't exist what I see a lot, I can't, again, that wrong fit, people looking for a solution in the wrong place, right? If your underlying asset is subject to risk, but you're looking for guarantees, isn't there a dichotomy? 100%. You're, you're looking at the wrong place. That's right. I tell people all the time, look, if you want a race car and you're on the racetrack and you're driving a truck and you're up against a race car, who's going to win? <laughs> it's the chassis is not right. You're in the wrong yeah. vehicle, dude. <laughs> Way wrong vehicle, yeah. I'm yeah. in a Lambo. You're in a pickup. Who's going to win the race? <laughs> okay? 
but let's change this thing. You're trying to move. I'm in a Lambo and you're a truck. You're trying to move all your stuff. Who's going to be how to do a better job? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's the tool for the job. So stop thinking your tool is the best thing. I hate advisors who say this is bad or that is bad because the reality is it's not about the product. It's about their personal bias. That's it. It's supposed to be about you, the client, what's your fit, what's your needs. So where's whole life is good fit? So he's looking for guarantees, consistency, steadiness. I call it the steady, consistent grower. Mm-hmm. When I deal with real estate investors, which I deal with a lot of them, I've spoken around the country the last five, six years. I spoke to the largest real estate investor groups in Seattle, L.A., Vegas, Denver, Chicago, and some others in the last five years. So I've been in front of literally thousands of real estate investors. And I say to them, look, I have this. And I'll, by the way, we do IUL. We do whole life. You'll get in the, our industry. You'll get agents say, do IUL, whole life sink. It sucks. Or, you know, or you get whole life agents and IUL is toxic. And I tell them you're both wrong. IUL has a place. Whole life has a place. For the real estate investor, you want to access the funds, right, to take the monies and use it elsewhere for real estate investing. Here's your analogy. Let's say you want to buy a long-term rental property, a cash flow property, and you're going to get a mortgage on it. Do you want a fixed or variable loan on that, Jason? I would prefer a fixed. Every real estate investor says that. And why do you want a fixed mortgage? Because I know Even what if my, variable is better. Because I know right. what, what my expenses are. I know, the devil I know. Exactly. You can calculate your ROI, your rate of return on investment, right? Correct. Whole life is your fixed mortgage. IUL is your variable mortgage. It's that simple. Gotcha. Gotcha. So uh, let's let's dive into this concept just a little yeah. bit deeper if we can. Yep. Um, I know yeah, because I got another piece. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, you, I know that you have a, a, a serious mind for this stuff. And with your communication skills, I want to challenge you to All give right. uh, the total novice. Because I believe most people who right. are my age and younger have never right. even considered any of these products and what they could do for them over the course of a lifetime. And with, right. with your skill set and your communication skills, I'm going to issue a challenge. Can you give uh, in this audio an overview that would entice someone who's my age or younger to come and sit and talk with you based on the benefits that you can provide to them over the course of their life and which product you know, would you, would be your go-to? And I know this is sort of a loaded question because you need to know more circumstances. Right. But at the end of the day, you know, if you had to pick one, what would you go to? What would you recommend? What would you put people in um, just with what little bit I'm giving you now? So there's two questions you've really asked me. So the first thing it would be, I guess, is, you know, what is, I always say, what is your personal bank? Mm -hmm. And this is a, there's a lot of level of confusion on that. What your personal bank truly is, is it's a financial concept that combines bank tools with insurance tools to create positive arbitrage. So it's a, so it's a strategically, we're strategically aligning these two products. And here's what I mean. I'm going to use the fixed steady Eddie option. Understand we have the index option too. And I'll share with you in a minute why we would do one versus the other. Okay. But we're going to stick with the fix because we know the numbers. I can get your product today. They'll pay you 6.1%. Tax free. I can get you a bank line of credit that'll use the cash of that policy as collateral and they'll charge you 3%. Now, Jason, if your money's growing at six and you're getting charged three to use it, what's happening to your money? It's still growing. 
at three, you're getting 3% positive arbitrage, aren't That's you? That's right. Absolutely. You've brought up real estate. By the way, I even said on the radio today, I'm agnostic to what you invest in. I don't care if you invest in real estate, the stock market, cryptocurrency, precious metals. You pick. If you have an investment that you like and it's working, I'm going to tell you to keep doing it. If it ain't working, I'm going to tell you to stop. Do something di different. All right. But if it's working, keep doing it. All I'm going to say to you is say, look, instead of investing directly in that investment and getting whatever your return is, float into the personal bank, by the way, we'll get you 60 to 90% liquidity day one. That's huge. Most people don't realize you can even do that. Put it in there. The bank line of credit will be 95% of the cash value of that policy. Okay. Day one. We'll get, we'll get you 100% liquid within a few years. Okay. Point is, you put it in the policy. Get six one, access it from the bank line of credit, pick up three point one positive arbitrage. What if your ROI is ten percent on your invest? Whatever you're doing out there, you want to make thirteen? I'm really happy. Yeah, that's what's happening. <laughs> but all I'm saying is I'm going to give you three more. I'm going to show you how to make three more on whatever you're doing. If your ROI is seven, you want ten? A hundred percent. Yeah. You see my point? I don't care what your ROI is. I don't care what you're investing in. I'm going to add to it. Another example, I tell people all the time, how, what do you use this for? Investing in other things. We've talked about that. What about, what about if you have some debt? What if you could reduce your cost of borrowing by 3%? Mm -hmm. What if you have a car loan that's 5%? Instead of paying it directly, you flow it through the personal bank, the policy, borrow access for the bank line of credit. Right. What's, your, what, what's your cost of your, your loan on your car loan now? 2%. Student loans, same thing. Mortgages. I did this last week with a client. Just got refied a house, 30-year fixed mortgage, three and a quarter. Mm -hmm. They have some money in another account they're not happy with. Put it in, They're putting it in the personal bank, accessing it through the bank line of credit, getting 3.1 positive arbitrage, and paying their mortgage payment. Mm -hmm. Their mortgage interest is three and a quarter, right? Mm -hmm. So what's their net mortgage cost and net interest now? Smiley face is what it is. 0.15? Right, right. They're, they're over the moon. It's amazing. This is a younger couple. 30, early 30s. Mm -hmm. All right. Now, here's the last piece. You mentioned younger folks. Why would this make so much sense for them? There's a concept out there called compound interest. The younger you are, the more time you have, the more compound interest is going to benefit you. I was interviewed a few months ago by a, 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 a Eliances. It's a great networking group. Of, it's the largest networking group. I'm a member. Mm -hmm. And the head of them he did a radio interview with me. And he said, if you were going to, he asked me this one question. I thought it was awesome. If you were going to meet with a young person today, what would you tell them? I said, compound interest is your best friend. This, here's what I want everybody to understand. Growing wealth, here's a, a financial concept. And I used to teach, a, uh, uh, we didn't get into all that, but I used to teach a college course on financial literacy. It's still taught in colleges. Mm -hmm. But one of the key th things about building wealth is ROI, return on investment, is key. No question, no argument. But most investors focus on that sometimes almost exclusively to everything else. Focus far too much on just that. I, I would say to you, what's the tax implications? For example, what's the risk risk level? What's your risk of loss? Okay, there's some other key factors. But here's the other part of wealth, building wealth. It's not just growing your nest egg. It's not growing the pile. It's also what happens when you take it out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What's the distribution plan? Here's why. Almost every investment you look at, you can build a huge nest egg. But at some point, you're going to need to take it out, at least supplement retirement, if nothing else, right? 
When you spend those dollars, Jason, what happens to return on those dollars after that point? Not much. Zero. That's you right. spent the monies that you took and spent, right? I don't care what you spend it on, debt, buying things, investing other things, or supplement retirement, whatever it may be. Yeah, they're dead. They're gone. They're out of your control. You'll That's never right. earn a dime. What if you could pick up 3% on all the dollars you spent? I'm a happy man. And compound that over a decade or two or right. three or more. Just in a decade, that's 30% more money on the money you spent. What if you spent 60 grand a year? Mm-hmm. Just on basic stuff. Think about that. I am. And you picked up 3% of that yeah. every year, the rest of your life. Yeah, exactly. With that 1800 bucks or whatever that is. But it turns into huge numbers. I just did, and, a, and by the way, there's a, a concept called leapfrogging. This is used by wealthy families. It's been taught for generations. I just did one for a client this week. He has a one-year-old daughter. He is funding 7000 a year into a policy, one of these I'm talking about, for her. At age 65, she will have $2, two million tax-free, guaranteed. Amazing. Absolutely That's amazing. the power of compound interest. Yeah, I I am so intrigued with this. And uh, you and I <laughs> talked um, previously. I told you a little yes. bit about my story, and I don't mind sharing right. it publicly. You know that uh, my wife and I both ha- own whole whole life policies, right? And the way that they traditionally work, my understanding. Again, I'm I'm a remedial student here, so bear with me. <laughs> Understood. But you know, we we buy the policies, uh, and you know, we pay each month a premium, or you can pay it annually, whatever the case may be. Right. You can overstuff it with cash using a paid-up addendum right. rider. And which so, is what you want to do. Which is what you want to do, right? So we, we let cash build up in there. And, of course, like you said, it accrues interest at a you know mm-hmm. 4 to 6%, whatever it is. And that, the way I understand it, is compound interest. And it, traditionally, yes. if I borrow cash from the policy, uh, when the, the cash that I borrow f- directly from the policy would be paid back on simple interest calculated once Correct. per year, right? Correct. But that's different from what you're talking about yes. by collateralizing this with a bank. We're taking this to the next level, literally. Right. I This week, Jason, I'm not kidding. I had a fin- professor of finance uh, from, I can't say mm-hmm. yet, one of the universities mm-hmm. in New York. He's asking me to be a guest speaker, a guest presenter, because he goes, I am totally, he goes, I'm amazed, I'm intrigued, I've never heard of this. Mm-hmm. Everybody I talk to is saying the same thing. What you're talking about, Jason, works. But here's the challenge. I shared share this on the show. This can air next week. Mm-hmm. So go to yourpersonalbank.com if you want to listen. <laughs> but the thing is, the policy, depending on the policy you have, which company it is, right now, today, they're all paying somewhere in the high fours to six rate, low sixes. That's mm-hmm. what all the companies. By the way, through my banking contacts, my finance, I have got a chart. See, here's, what, here's where it came from. I got to thinking. Who analyzes these cash value policies more than anyone else? It's the banks willing to lend against them, to use them as collateral, right? Because they're willing to put their money on the line, right? Mm -hmm. By the way, the lenders will not lend against just any old policy or any old company. That's right. In fact, there's about a dozen that they're willing. They have their lists, and there's a few outliers. But in general, there's about a dozen companies that are willing to lend against. That tells you something. Mm -hmm. Because they're looking at the financials, they're looking at the cash growth, they're looking at the ratings, right? Because they're putting their money out on the line because that's collateral for the loan, right? So I would listen to them. If they're not willing to loan against it, I wouldn't do it either. I wouldn't have that contract, right? There's a reason. So they've put together a chart that they sent to me 
Now, by the way, they did ask me not to share this publicly, so I can't put it on my website. I can't share this on the radio, but I can do this individually. So I put it on the radio. Contact me. Mm -hmm. I have a chart that shows the dividend rates of all the companies the lenders are willing to lend to for the every year for the last 25 years, their dividend rates. Wow. Jason, there are three companies that have paid 6% or more every year for the last 25 years. When you look at this chart, and if we meet together individually, I'll be happy to show it, you oh, will know will. in a second, exactly, you will know in two <laughs> seconds which companies you want to work with. And by the way, many of them are well-known, you know the names. So these are very well-known, A-plus rated. Every one of these companies have been around since before the Civil War. Never miss a dividend, okay? Long-term dividend payers. If you're, again, you can make six. If you're borrowing from the policies, the policy loans, all of these offer that too. The problem is the current policy loan rates, depending on which company, the lowest I've seen is mid threes mm -hmm. and the highest is eight. Most of them are about five right now. Mine's 4.7. Most companies, yeah. Most companies right now are paying around five. I told you I have a three that are paying six and plan to continue. But let's say you're making five, and let's say your policy loan rate is five. That's the most common right now for most of the companies. Well, here's the deal. The, the insurance banking concept works. The problem is you're making five, you're getting charged five, what's your money doing? Yeah, well, it, it wouldn't it depend on uh, the compound versus simple concept? You would right? have the compound versus simple, so you would have a slight gain in that, and over time that could expand. Right. But basically it's marking time, isn't it? Right, but point taken, it's not doing much. It ain't doing much. Right. If you're making six and getting charged three, what's going on? Doing a lot better. Compound, and you still got the compound and the simple thing going on because the interest on the bank line of credit is simple. Yeah, so you're Let me give well you one above more three reason. at that point. Yeah, 3.1 now. Mm -hmm. Let me give you one more thing. The interest on, on any policy loan is not tax deductible for any reason. Interest on a bank line credit is if it's used for business purposes in most cases. Right, that's beautiful. That just makes me smile. <laughs> <laughs> so I just widen the gap the, if you consider the tax cons, the tax implications, right? 100%. 100%. I love that. And, and, and these policies are, are so, so beneficial in so many different ways. I mean, you mentioned the tax consequences, mm -hmm. but uh, I think there's another piece too. And correct me if I'm wrong. Again, I'm not the expert here, but aren't, isn't there a protection against legal suits with these yes. policies as well? Isn't that why OJ never had to pay a dollar kind of a thing? Part of the reason, yes. Um, I can tell you that story. Uh, by the way, the other piece of it, and we have uh, strategic partners we work with with our agency. I have asset protection attorneys, tax attorneys, CPA, you name it. Um, if you need any of those things, we've got tremendous strategic partners. One of our asset protection attorneys, by the way, is, has worked with the last three of us presidents, to give you an idea. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> we're not messing around. But the protections are state-based. So each state is different. Arizona, for example, one of these policies, once it's in place for two years, yes, it's then protected from lawsuits, bankruptcies, creditors, any of that. Okay. Florida and Texas has immediate protection immediately, 100%. Also, Florida and Texas have 100% homestead exemption protection. Mm. Arizona has 150K. Also, 401 uh, pensions and 401ks are also exempt. And so OJ had an NFL pension, federally exempt. You can't touch it. You can kill somebody. You can't touch it. Mm. He owned a $10 million mansion in Florida, 100% homestead protected in Florida. He can kill somebody. It doesn't matter. I'm not saying he did, but you could. 
and it's protected. Mm-hmm. His other money put in insurance policy, which is also protected by the state, 100%, no limit. That's why so many folks from New York and such retire to Florida. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. Amazing, yeah. amazing, amazing benefits. So yeah. I, I, I am so grateful for you sharing that information <laughs> and, and, and diving down that. And yes, you and I are going to talk outside yeah, of this as I'm well because sure. I, I have a lot of questions for you that are personal in nature. Uh, but I don't want to monopolize the rest of your evening and I want to get you to your <laughs> massage on time. So with All that right. said, can you give us a quick snippet of what success looks like for you at this point in your life? <sighs> I would say time. Money and things can be replaced, but time cannot. Mm -hmm. So anything that I can do to buy more time to do the things that I want to do, spend with my family, play my trombone, and do the things that I enjoy with life are the things that I try to accomplish. This is an odd year. For the last six years in a row, again, we learned about the banking concept, start putting money away, have money in reserve. It's grown for us anyway, whether we use it or not. We've gone to Europe for four to six weeks each summer, the last six years. This is our first summer because of COVID. I'm home. I'm working still. Mm-hmm. I'm in Phoenix, suffering through the heat. It ain't fun. <laughs> <laughs> but the and my daughters are 14 and 16 today. And almost on a daily basis, our family has discussions about, remember when we did this? Remember when we were there? Remember when we were having gelato in Rome? Remember when we were at the Eiffel Tower watching Bastille Day was a few days ago? We were at the fireworks at Bastille Day last year. Amazing. And my girls, my wife, we're constantly talking about these experiences. And we're, ta- we're planning to go uh, next summer, okay? We're talking about not only what we've done, but where we're going. Jason, those experiences are priceless. And I, I really gasped grass this probably about five years ago. I was at one of those conferences, those top producer conferences. And there was a guy they were honoring for a Lifetime time Achievement Award. One of the top producers in the country, owned an agency. This guy's super duper successful. And he's like in his 80s now. And they were he was, and he said, if I want to impart, he said, I want to impart two things. He like, I've been very successful. I've made a lot of money. I've lost a lot of money in my life. He goes, when you get to this point in your life, he goes, I'm going to tell you, there's only two things that are really important. And he goes, it's your relationships and your experiences. Those can't be replaced. That is so incredibly powerful. Thank you for sharing yeah. that. And yeah. for anyone who is curious about these concepts that we mentioned, how can they reach out and touch base with you or get in contact with you? What is the best means by which? The best way would be yourpersonalbank.com. That's our website. You can go there, uh, contact me. I'd be happy to set up a GoToMeeting or a chat. GoToMeeting is best because I'll show you the chart of all the best companies for the last 25 years, okay? Mm-hmm for example, but happy to talk to you. Within 20, 30 minutes, you'll know if this is something you want to do. And about 80% of the time when I talk to somebody, they actually follow through and do it. I'm not going to sell you. I'm going to educate you. And my attitude is you're a big boy and girl. You can figure out what's good for you. Um, Yeah, you can call us, uh, our phone number, 866-515-6280. But frankly, yourpersonalbank.com, best place. And also all the previous radio shows. I've been on the money radio for about a year now talking about it's called the Your Personal Bank Show. Uh, They actually asked me two weeks ago to double up. I'm on twice a week now (laughs) because the response has been tremendous. And I'm teaching and educating these very concepts we're talking about to sophisticated investors. And they get it. They understand this from a diversification 
standpoint, having some funds in an area that's outside of the Wall Street bubble makes sense for diversification purposes. Having guarantees, having tax benefits, having the positive arbitrage makes sense. Okay. And by the way, these policies do include a long-term care type benefit. It's included. There's no extra cost. I'm not saying you're doing it for that reason, but God forbid something happens. You've got critical chronic care benefits available, money available. For, that's why I do his and hers with the spouses to protect each other. And there is a death benefit. It, we're minimizing it, but there is one. Mm-hmm. And I find most people I meet with are vastly underinsured. Statistics repeatedly show that out. And God forbid something happened to you prematurely, your loved ones would be taken care of. So we we manage all of that basically using these two tools. Beautiful. I will link all of that up in the show notes. I will send awesome. people to yourpersonalbank.com. And that said, man, I want to thank you so much for taking the time today to share not only the financial wisdom that you've accumulated over the years, but so much from your personal story. I know there's going to be a lot of people, myself included, who've picked up lots of nuggets from both of those aspects of your life. And uh, to take so much time today to be generous with that, I really appreciate it. And I thank you so much for uh, being here. And uh, we'll get everything linked up. And if you guys want to reach out to Ference and learn more about what he's doing in the business and financial world, be sure and do that. He's such a great guy to talk to. And I know he'll be very, very helpful. And with that said, guys, on behalf of Ference and myself, this is Jason Archer signing off. We'll see you in the next episode. Take care. That's going to do it for this episode of Hardwater Radio, guys. As always, thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you guys. And if you're vibing on this content, be sure and help us grow the tribe by liking, sharing, subscribing. And by all means, leave us a comment on your favorite podcatcher. Let us know what you like, what you dislike. And if you are someone out there who would like to tell your story, we are a collector of stories here. Shoot me a message, jason at hardwater.com or pick me up on social media. Uh, Facebook, Instagram, whatever works for you. And I'd love to have that conversation with you guys. Until then, this is Jason Archer signing off, reminding you to remember your future.